The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 65 of the murder in my family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the case of 36-year-old Andrew Batten, who was found dead in the middle of the road 10 miles from where he was last seen. Unfortunately, his death has only led to more questions instead of providing answers. We'll jump into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murdermyfam or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shoutouts to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Sydney Dark. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One more note before we get started. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Andrew Batten was a man who loved life, his work, family, and his friends. The 36-year-old father of four was described as being a gentle giant, standing six feet two and weighing 300 pounds. He had a lot going for him, but in the early morning hours of June 2nd, 2012, his life came to a sudden and violent end. This episode is being released on July 18th, 2020, on what would have been Andrew's 45th birthday. Instead of celebrating today with Andrew, His family is spending his birthday searching for answers, and for the person or person that ended Andrew's life. Andrew was well known around his hometown of St. Augustine, Florida. He was a people person, always stopping into local churches or the American Legion Hall, or taking time to volunteer at a homeless shelter. According to everyone that knew him, Andrew never met a stranger. When Andrew was younger, his friends called him Andy, but once he got older, Andrew jokingly said, stop calling me Andy, I'm too old for that, call me Andrew, which is what everyone started to do. Andrew graduated from Allen D. Neese High School and worked his way through college, attending St. John's River, 
And all through school, Andrew had a love of computers and the internet, and he knew he wanted to have a career working in that field. He soon landed a job working at AOL in Jacksonville, Florida. But as much as Andrew liked to work, he also found time to do the things he loved, like bowling, swimming, hunting, and fishing. And he also found time for love. He married his sweetheart, Belinda, in 2001. She had two children from a previous relationship, and Andrew loved them like his own. Before too long, Andrew and Belinda had two more children together, and their family was complete. But eventually, Andrew's job at AOL came to an end, and he took a job at Citibank. The job required Andrew and his family to move to Costa Rica. They loved the change of scenery. In August 2011, Andrew and his family moved back to St. Augustine. Once he was there, Andrew began looking for ways to help others, and he volunteered at a church cooking meals for the homeless. Helping people was a constant for Andrew. One of his mother, Betty's favorite memories of Andrew, is when the entire family went to visit a sick grandfather in Georgia. While there, Andrew saw a man who appeared to be down on his luck sitting at a picnic table and reading a Bible. Andrew went over to him and started a conversation. Without warning, Andrew sprang up and ran across the highway to Kentucky Fried Chicken. And with the last few dollars in his pocket, he bought the stranger some food. When he brought it back to the man, the stranger asked Andrew how he knew that he hadn't eaten in a couple days. Somehow, Andrew just knew, and he did something about it. In early June 2012, Andrew traveled with his father, Merrill, from Florida to their hunting property in South Carolina. Hunting season was coming up soon, and the father and son wanted to clean up and get the camp ready to go. After a long day of work, Merrill grew tired and went to bed. Andrew told his father that he wasn't ready for bed, and he was going to go out for a short walk, something he frequently did back in Florida. His dad later estimated that it was around 11.30 or 12 a.m. when he went to bed. The Sportsman Hunting Club sits in a secluded wooded area off Terry Road in Fairfax, South Carolina. It was an area that Andrew didn't know well, and he didn't have any friends there. Roughly three hours later, at around 3 a.m. on June 2nd in Allendale County, which is about 10 miles northeast of the hunting camp, a car's headlight shined on something laying in the road near Revolutionary Trail. When the driver looked closer, they saw that it was a body. They called 911, and when police arrived, it was too late. The body of a man was lying dead where the driver first discovered it. There were injuries to the head area. Police examined the scene and found no signs of skid marks, nor any evidence of a car attempting to stop. And there were no pieces of car or debris in the road, something you would expect to see if Andrew had been struck. The body was removed and taken to the medical examiner's office. Back at the hunting cabin, Andrew's dad woke up at around 5 a.m. and realized his son hadn't come back to the cabin. Panicked, he enlisted some of the fellow hunters to help him go look for Andrew, but no one knew where he was. Feeling helpless, Merrill called the state police and explained that his son was missing, and was told by an officer that they had in fact recovered an unidentified body earlier that morning. Merrill's heart sank. When they described the body, Merrill knew it was his son, something police soon confirmed. Merrill was faced with breaking the news to his wife Betty that their beloved son was dead. An autopsy later revealed no drugs or alcohol in Andrew's system. The mystery of how and why Andrew got 10 miles from his hunting cabin has never been explained. Lack of evidence of a crash or a car striking Andrew where his body was found 
leads to the possibility that he was killed elsewhere and his body was dumped where it was found. Due to the lack of evidence, witnesses, and answers, it remains to be seen if Andrew's murderer or murderers will ever be identified. The death of this friendly, gentle giant has left his entire family saddened and desperate for answers. Andrew's children were very young when he was killed, which is one of the saddest aspects of this case. They'll miss out on a full life with him. Although the last eight years have been extremely difficult and progress is slow, Andrew's family hopes that the person or person who took them from him will soon be brought to justice. Andrew's mother Betty sat down with me to discuss her son's life and tragic death, and she details just how hard it's been for the family since that fateful day eight years ago. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Is there something that interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there's been times when I wanted to go out and do something, but didn't make it because things I had on my mind kept me from doing what I wanted to do. If you find yourself in a similar situation, then BetterHelp Online Counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. And you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. And BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from depression, stress, and anxiety, to family conflicts, sleep issues, and more. Anything you share is confidential. And while BetterHelp is not a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com slash family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. Many of you know that true crime is my passion, but even someone like me needs a break from it every once in a while. So when I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a fun game that has a great puzzle-solving aspect to it, and an ongoing story that unfolds as you play. What I really like about Best Fiends is that the game really stimulates your brain and can be played casually. It's got a great-looking design and bright, bold colors. I just broke into the 500 level, and I'm excited to see what's ahead. I'm really having a lot of fun in the process, and I try to play every day. Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events, so it never gets old. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of 5-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends with the R. Best Fiends. Hi, Betty, and thanks for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss your son Andrew's case with us. Glad to be here. Glad to hear from you. Well, we're, we're talking now. It's 2020. It's been eight years now, uh, eight years ago in 2012, that you lost your son, and you've been waiting to see someone held accountable for his death. How hard have these last eight years been on you and your family? Very hard, very hard. Uh, We were a very close-knit family. My son, Andrew, had a younger brother 
they were four years apart and an older sister, and they're all four years apart. They were very close, and it's been very hard even now. Uh, my youngest son, he did, him and Andrew did a lot together. They did fireworks together. They went golfing together. They had a lot of interest together. And now um, my son, uh, Timothy, uh, which is Andrew's youngest brother, he has really virtually no, um, not doing anything. He does, he has no hobbies, no, he he doesn't go golf anymore. He doesn't do any fireworks anymore. The things that they did together, he still hasn't gotten back to it. And uh, his sister, they both live in St. Augustine, Florida, but they all grew up in St. Augustine. Andrew graduated from um, Alan Denise High School. So they grew up, and it's been very hard, and it's still hard, even uh, not knowing anything. You know, gotten very little information. So it sounds like everyone's really taking it hard, and, and in particular, maybe Andrew's brother is taking it the hardest. It sounds like they were good friends besides just being brothers. Right. They really were. They were very close. Uh, you know how most brothers, uh, when you're older brother, you don't want your little brother tagging along. And Andrew did. He took him places with his friends, and they did things a lot together. And so they were very close. And it being so sudden, you know, uh, he had been in Costa Rica. Uh, Andrew had been in Costa Rica for two years working with Citibank. He opened an office in Costa Rica, took his whole family there, and he had a son there. He, his wife, he was married uh, and she had two stepchildren, two children before they married, and then they had a daughter and a son. And the son was only a year old when Andrew was killed, and the daughter was eight. So they, so they we left, want, they, you know, he left, uh, you know, wife and, and kids behind as well. Right, right, right. And so it's been hard for everyone, you know. And as kids, you know, uh, Especially the daughter. She's 16 now, and, and she, want, you know, she wants answers that I can't give her, you know. And, of course, his son, he was only a year old. So, uh, I mean, he knows that he remembers his dad vaguely, you know. It's been hard for the whole family. And seeing us, you know, in St. Augustine, and it happened in South Carolina, because my husband, he went up there with my husband at, a, at my husband's hunting camp that he was uh, involved in. And they were, were working, doing things in the camp, getting ready for hunting season to start in August. And that's why he was there. It was a camper, and uh, they had a television, and they didn't even call me because they were having trouble with the television. And it was all like satellite, and it didn't want to work right because... My husband wasn't there, you know, uh, a lot, except during the hunting season. So they hadn't been there in a while, and things just weren't working. And I think that's why uh, Andrew couldn't sleep. He decided to go for a walk. Never walked before there. I mean, he walked in St. Augustine uh, around the house, you know, around the area, but never there. I'd like to um, definitely talk about some of that, uh, some of those details, because there's a couple questions that are still unanswered there. Be before we dive into that, because that's a little bit of a mystery all on its own, uh -huh. can, you, can you tell us a little bit about Andrew, what kind of person he was, some of your memories of him? Okay. Um, 
of course, you're asking somebody that's biased, but anyway, mm-hmm. uh, he was a good, uh, a, a real energetic kid. He always knew that he wanted to be involved in computering. When he was little, we used to give him those Radio Shack kits where you make the radios and the computers and stuff. And he knew that's what he wanted to do. And uh, he worked for AOL in Jacksonville for 10 years. And he loved it until they, you know, closed. And uh, then he went into... uh, company that were making uh, video games, and he liked that. It just was kind of short-lived. I think it was before its time, and it just didn't work out. And then he eventually got the job with City, and uh, uh, he worked for City, and then they sent him to Costa Rica, and he lived, him, he took his family, and they lived in Costa Rica for two years while he started uh, the office there. And uh, then things changed, and he came back home, and he was off at the time, and that's uh, when he decided to go with my husband because uh, he liked to hunt. You know, they hunted and fished. We were a real outdoor family. You know, uh, we camped, went camping a lot and, and that kind of thing. So uh, he loved the outdoors, I think especially because he was in the office so much, you know, indoors. So, so it allowed him to get out and do what he liked to do. Yes, yes, and he loved to hunt. My husband hunted deer, and uh, he loved it. And in fact, he was going to join the hunting club. You know, mm-hmm. so he was there uh, to. You know, he had been there uh, probably the last year or so. You know, um, but uh, he loved it, and that's what he was there for to help his dad and and get involved in uh, ready for hunting season. And I've seen I've seen your son referred to as a general giant. How did uh, he become known as the general, as a general giant. giant? Yeah. <laughs> well, he was he was a big guy. You know, he was tall, but he was also uh, a big. And he had uh, he was black belt in karate, but yet he was a very gentle and loving and kind person. He. Um, through the last few, I'd say, six months of his life, uh, when he came back from Costa Rica, he got involved with the homeless, and uh, he went to churches and cooked breakfast for the homeless. And because he was very tech-savvy, he helped them uh, uh, get, on, you know, get the benefits online to get the benefits to help them, you know, have money to live on. And uh, he was just a very outgoing. He loved everybody, you know. He never met a stranger. He was very, very outgoing. And uh, that's why a lot of people called him the gentle giant because he, he looked, you know, he looked like he could, you know, which he could. He was, you know, like I said, he uh, he uh, was very um, active in the karate and stuff like that, and he got the black belt. But yet, he could be uh, so gentle, you know, yeah. and my daughter always felt like that her brother was the gentle giant. <laughs> so it, it sounds like he was uh, a really friendly and giving uh, kind person, although yes. he looked uh, intimidating maybe to some people. Right, right, yeah. right. Well, it, you, you touched on a little bit um, in, in June 2012, early June, he's at this hunting uh, club 
with your husband, his dad, and they're not hunting necessarily, but they're getting the camp ready for the hunting season that's coming up, I assume, probably in the fall. So they're they're doing a little bit of work and stuff while they're there. Um, Right. How did that unfold? You mentioned that he decided to go for a walk. Um, Oh, okay. Well, I'll start at the beginning. Okay. On Friday afternoon, they uh, left St. Augustine to go to the hunting camp outside of Allendale uh, County. How far away is that, by the way, a ride from Um, It's probably about about four and a half hours from St. Augustine. It's right over the South Carolina, uh, uh, Georgia, uh, Florida line right there. It's just barely into South Carolina. And uh, they left in the afternoon, on Friday afternoon, after my husband got off work. And uh, they stopped at Crystal and got them some uh, food for supper and things that they needed uh, at the store because uh, they cooked at the camper and stuff like that. But anyway, they got to the hunting camp and uh, ate supper and and um, talked around. And my husband, of course, by 9 o'clock or 10, he was ready to go to bed. And they had, uh, like, a uh, main camp house where they have the bathrooms where they can take showers and stuff like that. And so... My husband went and took his shower and came back, and then uh, Andrew was going to do the same. Well, my husband laid down in the meantime and went to sleep probably about 11, 1130. Uh, So evidently, Andrew went and took his bath and put on his night clothes, which was, you know, just uh, shorts and a T-shirt. And evidently, because he... They couldn't get the TV working, and I guess he got bored, and he decided that he was going to go for a walk. So that was probably about, like, 12 o'clock. Were there other people in this camp, or just the two of them? Uh, no, there was other there was other people camping, you know, other members of the hunting camp that were there. Uh, but everybody had pretty much gone to bed, you know. So Andrew left... Uh, it was on uh, Terry Road there uh, in uh, in Allendale County and went for the walk, and they found him uh, around 3 o'clock in the morning. A woman was coming back from a hospital. Uh, a family member had been in the hospital or they had taken to the hospital emergency or whatever, but she come through and found his body uh, in the middle of the road. And... Uh, <clears throat> It was like three o'clock in the morning, and this is uh, and, this is sort of where the little bit of a mystery begins because this is ten miles from that camp. Right, right. It's ten miles from where he started out, and uh, that was one of the big mysteries. You know, they said there's no way. You know, they clocked it. The state troopers clocked it, and all. They said there's no way that they he could have made it there in that time limit and plus he wasn't a jogger you know so uh after that my husband woke up around five six o'clock in the morning and noticed that andrew was not in the bed so he went out looking for him couldn't find him he got some of the other uh camp members they went out and they all looked and couldn't find him 
So then they called uh, the uh, troopers, and they said yes, that they had found uh, an unidentified body uh, on Revolutionary Trail at 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, so they came to the camp, and, of course, Andrew didn't have anything with him, uh, his wallet or nothing. He just, you know, he'd left that all at the camp. And, of course, they looked at his license and all and said, yes, it was him. This must have been yeah. shocking for your, um, for your husband. My husband was devastated. Very, He was devastated. In fact, for a long time, he felt like it was his fault, you know, that he... But he, you know, didn't go out at night from there, didn't realize that it was, you know, dangerous um, to be out, you know, at night like that. Of course, if my husband had been awake, he probably would have, you know, uh, Andrew probably wouldn't have gone or he wouldn't have let him. But it was kind of something he decided on his own, evidently. Did he leave a note or anything to say that he was going out for a walk or did anyone see him leave to go on a walk? No, no, nobody did. Mm-mm. Everybody by that time was uh, evidently asleep or, or in their campers. As far as we know, nobody talked to him. From what my husband asked everybody, nobody had seen him since they had uh, gone in their campers that night. So it was, you know, not knowing, you know, uh, and Andrew knew, you know, and didn't know anybody in that area. Uh, except for the people that were right there in the camp. So it's not um, like he could have called a friend up and said, hey, let's hang out Right, I'm, I'm bored. He he, right. wouldn't, he wouldn't know anyone to hang out with. Yeah, he had no nobody. He knew nobody. And uh, the phones right there do not, cell phones don't work over there. <laughs> there you, you got no signal. So it's not like he could have called anybody, you know. But at the time, it, it seems like the police think that there's no way he walked that far. So oh, is, yeah. is it possible that he hitchhiked? Uh, was he the type that would take a ride with a stranger? Well, you would think, you know, if he was going to uh, hitchhike or go to town, of course, those little towns, you know, they roll up at dark, you know. But he didn't even have his wallet with him. He had nothing but uh, a lighter in his and his cigarettes. And that was it. He hadn't, you know, he didn't have his wallet or anything. So it's not like I wouldn't think he'd want to hitch to town when he didn't even have his money, you know, he didn't have his wallet with him. I think he just went out a casual walk, and I don't know. They surmised that either he ran into somebody that he saw something that they were scared that he was going to, you know, report, or, or they tried to rob him and he didn't have anything. But it's the real uh, mystery is him being killed the way he was. They said that he was facing the vehicle that ran over him, and they ran over uh, his head and all. So they couldn't really tell by the autopsy if, if he had been conscious or not. Did they think that he was killed right where he was found, or could he have possibly been dumped there at that spot? They think he could have been dumped there. I mean, there was a lot of blood there, but there was no, there was no um, tracks, no no car, no truck, uh, no vehicle tracks, and there was no skid marks or anything like that. 
In fact, we went there and put a cross there about six months after uh, right where his body was found. And and I think you, you mentioned earlier, too, there's no physical evidence. There's no piece of the car that hit him or any paint or anything like that right. that they have to go on? That's right. Well, like they said, mo- most of the time when people are hit, they're hit standing up. So, therefore, they get either uh, glass fragments or paint chips from the vehicle. But because Andrew was laying down, uh, none of that. His body didn't track anything. I talked to um, them uh, a couple of weeks ago. I finally got a hold of somebody. I've had a horrible time trying to even get any information about his case. Uh, so um, I um, finally got a hold of uh, Rita Grant, and she's a crime victim's advocate uh, in South Carolina, and she got me in contact with a, a trooper to go over his case, and uh, they just don't have anything, you know. They did the DNA on his clothing and stuff, but, uh, it, now of course, eight years ago, there wasn't a lot of DNA like it is now, and I have pursued to try to get them to re, to do a, a new, D, new DNA on his clothing, and they said that they would... Uh, she told me that the uh, trooper woman uh, that she would try to push it through to get his clothing DNA'd again, but she couldn't promise anything. And in this area where his his body was found in the road, mm-hmm. that area wasn't populated with a lot of houses and a lot of no. people, cameras, anything like that that might have found no. something. No, it's a it's a typical. I mean, that's why the hunt camp was there. It was out in them, you know, nothing but uh, fields and and woods. Very few homes, very few houses there. And so, so the mysteries. There's a couple different mysteries, sort of combined. Is a how did he get that far out there, and then b who ran into him and why. And, right. Uh, it, it, it's very puzzling the the fact that it is. And and to be honest with you, <laughs> it you know being a small town, there uh, one of their their people are are very uh, they're not real uh, talkative. You know, we talk guarded maybe secretive guarded something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I can understand. I mean, they didn't know us. My husband and I. Uh, we had the state trooper follow us, but we walked around the both ways that he could have gone in any house that was in that area. We stopped and gave him a flyer, uh, like I had sent you, to see if they had heard anything or seen anything, or you know, because we felt like it, it had as big a fella as Andrew was. One person could not have picked him up and and moved him. You know, it had to be a surmise. It had to be more than one person. Some people wouldn't talk to us, but then when they saw us on TV, we were, we stayed there like the whole weekend. We were on the radio, we were on TV, and um, I had people come up to me and say, "Oh, you're the lady and the guy that uh, the husband that was on TV about your son." I said, "Yes," you know, and I said, "If you know anything, please or or you know, hear anything, 
you know, and then some people got seemed like they warmed up after they saw it on TV, you know. And I can understand when you live out in the middle of uh, an area that not many people come to your house. I can I can surmise that you would be a little hesitant, you know, of people knocking on your door that you don't even know. Yeah, and but you said that they did warm up a little bit and and had a little yes. bit of a. Uh, yes, they did because we we went and ate that night in the town, and we had people come up to us and and uh, tell us how sorry they were and and uh, that if they heard anything they would sure tell you know, and so they warmed up a little bit after they saw us on TV. Did anyone ever come forward with any tips or leads or theories or anything at all? As far as I know, no. I think there was uh, one. I think a year after or a year and a half after uh, the state troopers called us and told us that they had, because uh, I was in touch with this Tom Moore, uh, he was kind of called me and I'd call him to keep up with Andrew's case and up to the first, you know, uh, five or six years, about five years. And um, they had somebody that, uh, said something about some guy, you know, and so they went to his house and impounded his cars and all that, and they found blood, but it ended up being animal blood, not human blood. So that, that's that been the extent of it. Now, when I talked to her the other day, she said they were still running it on Crime Stoppers uh, ever so often and um, interviewing people that go through that area and their cars, you know, stop, you know, kind of like a, uh, stopping cars and talking to people and and seeing, you know, if anything. But she said, so far, they, you know, they have nothing. And we talked a little bit before, he, your son Andrew didn't really know anyone in this area, so it's not like no. he could have had a problem or uh, an issue right. with anyone. Did you know anyone at all, uh, whether it be back in Florida or anywhere else, that had an issue or had a, a, a gripe with your son that might have wanted to harm him? Yes, I know they asked that question, and I really, really don't know of any problem that he was having with anyone. And like you said, there was, as far as uh, uh, South Carolina, he knew nothing, nobody there except the few people that were in the hunting club, and they were, you know, all in, you know, good terms. So, no, I know the the, uh, troopers asked that, and uh, we knew of no problem that he was having. This must be a really frustrating uh, case for the police to try and work because there's no witnesses, there's no physical evidence, Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's really nothing. uh, um, Have they uh, stayed in touch with you to say, hey, we're not giving up on this, we're still... No. (laughs) No, they haven't. In fact, I had to write a letter to the governor of South Carolina, which was um, uh, Haley. Uh, oh, what was her? I'm trying to think of her name. Uh, she was the governor of um, South Carolina at the time, and she got me in contact with uh, the trooper Moore, and I did find out. I had been calling him and never getting a return call, and I found out uh, from the trooper, she finally called me, that he had been uh, in an automobile accident and he was in bad shape. 
and that's the reason why he hadn't called me back, which made me feel a little bit better. But it's been hard uh, to get any information, you know, from uh, anyone. I don't know if it's because maybe because we don't live there or, or you know, uh, but no, they haven't been very forthcoming uh, about anything. Well, that's got to be very frustrating for your family to just be waiting for some kind of answers, but not much is really going on with the case. Right. That's why they were really, my son and my daughter was uh, really um, excited that I got in contact with uh, Project Cold Case to to maybe this would stir it, you know, uh, stir it up a little, you know, put some interest back into it. Yeah, I know Project Cold Case, you mentioned them, that they're working on it. Um, I know there's a Facebook page uh, for Andrew. What's a Facebook page called? Yeah, Justice for Andrew M. Batten. And and I guess people can learn more about the case or learn more about Andrew and, and maybe contact you if they have any information there? Right, right. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be sure to share that uh, so people can find that if they want to learn more about the case or they want to contact you. What other things you are you trying? Have you planned anything else or trying any different avenues to try and get more attention for the case? Um, really don't know where to go. Really don't know what, what we can do. You know, that's one reason, uh, uh, how I got in contact with project cold case was, uh, a friend of, uh, a niece, my husband has a, a cousin, uh, nephew, excuse me, and his wife was uh, knew a woman that was involved in the uh, Project Cold Case in Jacksonville, and she got me contacted with these, you know, with them, and that's how uh, I felt like that would be uh, some way, you know, with Facebook and you have so many people on the internet and what, and, you know, and your podcasts and stuff, that this would help maybe generate something. Well, I, I hope it does for your, your family's sake. It's been, you know, eight years without answers. And uh, I couldn't imagine being in your shoes just waiting for to hear something and then just not having those answers. But we'll do our part to share Andrew's story. Hopefully you get some kind of uh, results and, and find out who did this and why. Yes, that's the biggest thing is why, you know. Because he was, uh, you know, he's always such a friendly, outgoing person. He loved everybody. And uh, it, it just seemed like, you know, why? Just don't know why, you know. Keep fighting and, and keep trying to get those answers. And uh, um, I wish you luck in, in finding out what happened. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate all your help. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Please, if you have any information about the death of Andrew Batten, you're asked to contact the South Carolina Highway Patrol at 803-896-9621 or call 888-CRIME-STOPPERS. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. <laughs>